join the World Happiness Fest, the largest forum of happiness and well-being in the world. Visit us at www.worldhappiness.foundation. We are realizing a world with freedom, consciousness, and happiness for all. Welcome to the Heroes of Reality podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. Welcome to another excellent day at the World Happiness Fest, and this topic is mental health. And today I have a very special guest. Albert Skiprizzo is a clinical psychologist and director of medical virtuality at the University of Southern California Institute for Creative Technologies. He is also a research professor at USC Department Psychiatric at the UCS Davis School of Genetology. His career has begun as a clinician providing rehabilitation services for those persons with traumatic brain injuries and stroke. Over the last 25 years, Skip has conducted research on design, development, and evaluations of virtuality systems targeted on clinical assessments, treatments, and rehabilitations across the domains of psychology, cognitive and motor functions in both healthy and clinical populations, and his work is focused on PTSD, TBI, autism, ADHD, Alzheimer's disease, strokes, and other clinic conditions. And so without any delay, I'd like to welcome my friend, Dr. Albert Skip Rizzo. Hey, how you hey. doing? Hey, brother. It is always great to see you. Um, to see you too. When I, uh, thinking about the whole mental health topic, really, um, I, I, I know like, when I ever think of mental health and treatment and doing innovative things and really pioneering the way, and uh, you are for, for uh, at the forefront of all that technologies. And so, um, you know, I just really want to jam with you on the topic of mental health and what does it mean to be happy? And what does it mean to, you know, to, to really keep a healthy mind? Do you have any thoughts on that to kick things off? Well, I, I don't, I'm not sure if it comes naturally. <laughs> I think, I think um, evolution has programmed us to always be hypervigilant about resources. And if we're not getting enough of those resources, um, you know, you get anxious. And if you have failure over time, you might get depressed. I mean, maybe it's counter to evolution because getting depressed and not being happy is not a motivator for continuing to get resources. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a complex, uh, you know, evolutionary process here. But in the modern age, um, I think I think the the world has progressed faster than human evolution capability to cope with it. You mm -hmm. know, uh, you know, 100, 200 years ago. I think things were tougher physically, but psychologically, there weren't so many periods of ambiguity or visibility of um, abstract threat. Uh, I, you know, I think people were anxious about maybe different things in, in earlier times, but modern society puts a lot of stressors on people. So, yeah, I think it takes work to yeah. um, to, to keep yourself happy. I don't know. I'm naturally a happy person, so it's not so much work. For me, but I, when I see people, you know, the, the field I'm in, when I see people that have mental health problems, I, I really look at stress and trauma as being at the root of it, and it, it diminishes their ability to cope and develops negative bias. Hence, mm -hmm. they're not not so happy. Uh, I don't know. It's it's, it's that interesting. one question could go the whole hour. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Well, I mean, just just looking at that though, I mean, you're talking about naturally being happy or like the fact of how happiness doesn't always serve us as humanity, like in the past, like it doesn't really like trying to 
like if you're unhappy, you you and you're hyper aware and vigilant and you have anxiety, you're you're much more aware, which, you know, those genes and maybe epigenetics are passing those things along. But there's also a thing around doing things that are maybe unhappy in the moment that give you happiness afterwards. You know, those like hard tasks that then you reflect back on versus that mild, chronic, uh, low level. People use the word happiness, but it's really comfort. Right. And then they, mm -hmm. they look back mm -hmm. and they're like, oh, man, I'm not. It's kind of how I feel sometimes when I like, you know, back in the day, I'd, I'd sit around and watch TV all day long when I had a day off. And I just watched it all day because it's my time. Ha ha. And at the very end, I felt all weird. I felt yeah. all like crutching. And I'm like, I'm like, wow, I I gave myself a gift and now I just feel terrible. And I just can you talk to me about a little bit about that, like the difficult things and being unhappy in the moment versus like comfort. You know, the, some people have this theory about threat versus challenge that um, the difference between those things are that with challenge, you estimate you have the resources to overcome an obstacle. Uh, and with threat, it's like you doubt you have those resources. So it's threatening. And so like when you're playing a sport, you know, against hard competition, if you're playing against a team that you think you got the resources, you go into it and you're more energetic. But if you think you're going to get your butt kicked out there, you start to perceive it as threat. Mm -hmm. And that brings on a whole different set of things. So when people feel threatened by the world, it's oftentimes because they have a, a poor self-estimate of their capabilities to cope. Um, so how do you how do you get around that? Um, do you teach coping skills uh, or socio-emotional learning, which mm -hmm. I think is an important element uh, in modern society? But now I can't believe it. I'm, we're seeing political pushback in areas where this is being brought into a school system, kind of like how critical thinking skills were always criticized back in the 90s. You know, I want my kid to learn how to read, write, and do arithmetic, you know, uh, what's this highfalutin critical thinking stuff, you know, but back to the main point, um, you know, we live in a world where, um, you know, there are things that maybe me and you or whoever would take on as a challenge, it's going to be hard work, you can see further off in the distance that if you overcome that challenge, it's going to equip you to accomplish your goals or get something you want later on. But if you have doubts and, and, and you feel ineffectual in taking on challenges, then everything is a threat. And it's hard to be happy in that context because you're you're always waiting for the next thing um, to come. I mean, we're talking about, I, I don't want to, we'll have plenty of time to flesh mm -hmm. this out because everything yeah. seems to be outside in focused, mm -hmm. you know, but, you know, you can't just... You can't differentiate those two things. There's ways from the inside that you can learn that even if you're not going to overcome a challenge, it's still not a threat. It can be a trial and error learning experience. So, you know, it's this dynamic interplay between what affords opportunity in a real world and what kind of work or what you have to face to get to it versus what do you think you got on the inside to get through it? Yeah. What's interesting about that is you're talking about, okay, we all get stimuli. Things happen to us, right? We get affected. But what you're talking about is is really what we choose, the meaning we apply to that story, right? Whatever the thing is that we're talking about challenges versus threats, right? And that, that actually resonates a lot with me is when I feel like I'm underqualified or something's going to happen and I have no, and I'm without hope. I'm hopeless. 
then then it becomes a threat and then it becomes woe is me and then it becomes that whole victim mindset and that thing that kind of comes in on top of that and it's really hard because if you just tell someone oh just just change what it means to you right oh just change what it means to you and someone might sit there and just like oh yeah well it means uh, that doesn't mean that it means that it's not a threat it's a challenge right but saying those words is not the same thing as as believing it right and how do you dig how do you dig at that subconscious layer right how do you really you know, I mean, I, I I logically understand threat versus challenge, but if I really am feeling like I'm overwhelmed, I might. How do I how do I take my awareness and actually dig at that root to be able to change that out? Well, you know, there's a whole <laughs> spectrum of approaches. You know, the yeah. the most commonly applied thing in therapeutic and, and in wellness context is you know this whole cognitive behavioral approach, which, you know, the underlying element here is that your feelings aren't directly tied to the event it's what you tell yourself how you interpret or appraise the event mm -hmm. in the world that dictates your feelings and that a lot of times events in the world produce feelings that um, come about because people have gotten into habitual patterns of self-talk that is negative um, whether it's over generalizing like they you know, you know you make a mistake and you know you don't you don't accomplish something instead of just saying okay i didn't do that but i learned something and next time i'll be able to do it instead you're saying oh you know that's how it is with everything i'm inept i'm not capable um, and so cognitive behavioral psychology tries to address what we call these automatic thoughts or these cognitive distortions these unhealthy ways of interpreting your capacity to interact in the world in a negative way um and and it becomes almost habit like you you know we always say you know the event happens and you say something in your mind and that drives the emotion other people have different views about the you know mind and body and emotion and mm -hmm. what comes first but you know if you get into a habit where you're you're not even thinking those words but it happens in a, a millisecond from this frame of reference that you have, uh, that I'm not good enough. I'm always bad. I have no control. Um, that's where you get this downward spiral into negative emotionality, I think, and, and being unhappy. Mm. Um, you know, it's all the, the whole cognitive behavioral thing is about your appraisal of the world and your capacity to deal with it. And then, you know, I mean, you can make all these ties to, to different, personality theorists from you know 100 years ago alfred adler you know the whole thing about competency in the world or mm. you know i mean it's 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 hard it's really hard to tell somebody that's depressed or with a mental health condition oh just think differently about it but if you can get them to engage over time and practice ways of being and ways of reframing their experience over mm -hmm. time it'll make a difference like you know the whole positive psychology thing about at the end of the day you should write down three good things that happened that day and if you know if, if it was just a crap day you know maybe you're writing down well i woke up i continued to breathe you know um i i ate something that sustained my life for a day you know yeah. um, at the very basic you know the lower end of maslow's hierarchy but you know if you do that and, and the research shows if you do that for 30 days all of a sudden you start to see a dramatic change 
in uh, in people's mood ratings about their life and about events in the world. Mm. And, and so maybe there is something by cueing people to look for positive things that is a counter agent to this response bias that, of negativity. Yeah, so you're almost talking about like emotional fitness, right? The same way it's like, hey, you want to get strong? And you're like, go in the gym and lift weights. And somebody goes inside and they lift weights and they come back. Hey, I'm not any stronger. Actually, I'm more tired now. It's like, wow, you, you went one time to the gym. Good for you. Do that 30 more times and then we'll talk at the end of the month. And so it's almost like the people look at the whole positive affirmations or people look at, you know, being aware of your mental state of the stories that you have. And if you do it once, it doesn't really do anything. Is that what you're talking about? Is that is that building that muscle over time? Is that an actual muscle? Do you know anything about that neuroscience behind that? I don't. I don't actually know if that actually is a because uh, I know I know my chest or my pecs, and I, I don't know if you could like scan the brain and be like, hey, bro, look how strong my prefrontal cortex yeah. is, yo. <laughs> well, you know, we know anytime anybody uh, learns something or engages yeah. in something to learn, there is morphological changes and functional changes in the brain. We just don't understand it fully, but you know, it is. It, I think your brain does change just like a muscle with exercise, totally different process. You're ripping muscles, uh, and, re and the muscle repairs itself and gets bigger and so on. Um, but with the brain, you know, you've got things that change in terms of uh, when you're in high, st highly stimulating, enriched environments, you get more uh, axonal sprouting, which produces more connections throughout the brain. Uh, you see differences in the potentiation at the synapse that connect uh, neurons. So you can get down into that muddy neuroscience stuff and 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 say that, but it I think it does speak to the issue that practice makes perfect. You know that you know that the, this is what I said in the very beginning. Sometimes it takes work uh, to learn to be happy. And in some cases, you know, you look at kids with adverse childhood experiences that follow them through their whole life because they struck a template early on that the world's a dangerous place, that I'm not good enough. Uh, maybe they take responsibility for things that happened to them that they had no responsibility for. And if you can turn that around at an earlier age, then uh, maybe you're going to save you know, 40, 50 human years of life of suffering and be able to teach people to, you know, find a beauty in the world or find their place in the world that they can accept themselves or, um, you know, accept, you know, you don't have to be the most popular person in the room if you got one good friend, you know? Yeah. And there's something to that. Uh, you're talking about like, there's things that affect you when you're a child that you just, you carry, you know, it's just this thing that you throw out like a, like a backpack filled with pain right? In trauma, you just throw it on your backpack and it just, it's just harder to get about and move those things. And there's like almost sometimes people feel this like, like this righteous justification. Like I, I deserve this pain. I, I should be unhappy. There's like this, uh, there's almost like this like belief in some sort of ways that I don't know. I've seen that sometimes pop up with people where they don't really want to actually, they, they feel like for some reason they don't deserve happiness or they don't, they don't deserve um, the ability to 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 let go of the pain that they have because of some sort of like story that's anchoring them down. Like, and, and I'm curious about like when like when you when you see that with people, is there like um is there a, like a typical pattern to like healing that kind of trauma? Is there ways to actually break through that the the resistance that some people might have to letting go of the pain that they're trying to like 
protect themselves with, right? Like I don't trust anybody. Everybody's a threat at a young age. Somebody threatened me. And so I can't trust anyone. And they just kind of go through their life moving that way. Is there like ways to help with that? You know, I think a lot of times the basis of like trauma focused therapy, the kind of things we do with PTSD, where we're encouraging people to confront and reprocess difficult emotional memories, to talk about it, to get it out. Um, and that, that puts you on the playing field to be able to think about it in a different way. It's just so painful. People don't want to talk about that. Now, in this case where it's like people look at it as a badge of honor, yeah. you know, you know how much of that is, you know, you kids don't know how easy you have it kind of thing, or how much of it is, um, you know, feeling sorry for yourself or how much of it is uh, this endless cycle of, of a negative self-evaluation that was ingrained at an early age that, you know, it, it comes down to a basic thing, helping people to tell their story, confronting elements of that story and doing it repeatedly, uh, you know, getting people to talk. You know, a lot of times, uh, you know, people with PTSD, when you get them in a, a therapeutic context and they start to feel safe and you get them to talk about the, the things that, that they experienced that were really bad, sometimes they've never talked to anyone about it. They never felt safe enough to be able to talk about it or they always felt like they would be stigmatized if they talked about what had happened to them as a child or what happened to them in a, a war zone or whatever. Uh, and sometimes just being able to have someone to it sounds it sounds really pedestrian here, but that just to have someone to to get it out and to talk to in a non-judgmental way, and that's a part of the core of therapy. I mean, therapists always make judgments and try to try to help a person to overcome their challenges. But that's one thing a, a patient can feel is safety when they're in a, a clinical setting, unless they got a half-assed therapist. But um, the, the 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 you know the the trip is with all this when you look at what's responsible for clinical outcomes after therapy, regardless of the therapeutic approach, half of the variability is accounted for by the relationship with the therapist, the what we call non-specific factors in therapy, uh, feeling an alliance, feeling you can trust someone, feeling that what you say stays in that room and that you're the focus of that uh, therapeutic experience. Mm -hmm. That that counts for at least half of the, uh, the positive clinical outcomes, whether you're using behavior therapy or, or psychodynamic, cognitive behavioral, humanistic therapy. And a lot of people don't like that because they get so invested in their, their orientation, their theoretical therapeutic orientation. You know, the clinicians, you know, they think, well, you know, the science says behavioral therapy, observable behaviors, that's going to be the focus. You know, these mm -hmm. psychodynamic people talking about you know, early experiences with your mother or whatever, you know. That... It, so you're saying like the, I, I, I love the blanket statement of these unspecific terms of you're saying, you know, really it's this, it's how getting out the, the trauma, because there's this thing that like you hold it in, right? And you have this event that happens that you don't share either because of like shame or guilt or fear or, or, or whatever reason, but you don't, you don't feel safe to share it. Right. And then if you create safety, you know, mm -hmm. psychological safety and you have that bond with somebody and you actually feel that that comp that, that, that there's things that I was, I was looking at something is like, you know, building trust is a, is a, a part of competence. Right. Is like, are they competent in, in an area? 
And then also with, in terms of benevolence, like, do they have your back? Right. And, and I feel like when you talk about these non-specific things, it's like, if I tell you, are you just going to go run and tell my mom, are you going to go run and go, go to HR, whatever, whatever the thing might be where you're like, are you getting this information to serve you or serve me? Right. And if they, and that, that is a really interesting thing of the, the, the healing that happens with that social connection of just being heard and then, and then feeling safe enough to where you, you, you have all this like, like armor where you're trying to protect yourself. And I don't know if PTSD is kind of like armor where they're trying to armor up and then you're trying to get them to open up because the wound is underneath the armor. Right. I, I think so you, I think you put it in, in really great, perfect intuitive terms. Um, you know, one of the things with, with trauma is that people want, they got, they, they got hurt so bad that they don't want to go anywhere that reminds them of the trauma that is reminiscent of the trauma, or they don't want to think about it. They fight like heck not to think about it. They don't want to talk about it. And consequently, part of the therapy is to get people not to avoid, to confront these places, to confront these thoughts, to, or to do it in a safe place, you know, and without the fear of shame. I mean, there's no psychologist is going to say that happened to you. Oh, you better find a better, uh, different psychologist. I don't want to. I don't want to see you anymore. You're never going to be abandoned. You, well, yeah. good, good therapy anyway. Yeah. Um, you have that acceptance so that you can, you can talk about these things. You can confront and reprocess these memories. And a lot of times, when mm. people go through a traumatic event, uh, there's alterations in their cognitive appraisal, and they walk away from it feeling either more, they're more responsible. You see this with sexual assault survivors. Sometimes they start to. To feel like, well, I, you know, I egg this on, or I'm responsible in some way, or I should have known better. You know, you should yourself to death. And in actuality, that should never have happened to you. You had no part in that. That's not a right thing. And helping somebody to talk about it over and over mm. and over. They don't do this. They don't have the opportunity to confront and think about it differently because they're so set on avoidance and as you start to avoid things in life and start to generalize more and more and more and you're not so much fun to be around so your social network starts to shrink a little bit and so you're missing that social support in your everyday life and you start to have a thin life and this is this is why you know we always say it's hard medicine for a hard problem when we work with, with like our vr type of exposure therapy for yeah. for trauma because it is hard work you know, yeah. but the pay, you know, we also counterbalance it by saying, you know, the suffering you're feeling shouldn't be a life sentence that, you know, you can get past that. Yeah. There's that, that thought of it's my fault. It's my fault. This happened. I, and that's, that again, goes back to the, I deserve this. I deserve to be in pain. I deserve this. It's my fault. And I, it, and I'm, I want to suffer or whatever the, whatever the thing might be, or, there's, there's something about that. I don't want to share it to anybody because it's embarrassing or, or whatever the, the thing might be. But one thing you talk about, about removing the armor, and that's what I thought was really innovative about um, your Brave Mind project um, and what you did with Brave Mind about this exposure therapy in VR and the work that you've done there. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, what the Brave Mind application did and kind of what was the effect it had on the population you were serving? 
Sure, sure. Well, I, I want to go back to a point you said about yeah. people say they deserve that. Yeah, you know, they deserve this. Where does that come from? Does that come from a dysfunctional upbringing? Does that come from a, a scorning, you know, uh, parent? Does that come from? I mean, that that sets the stage for a whole sequence of other kinds of mental health challenges that people may face if they go through life thinking they deserve to suffer. But where does that come from? Yeah. You know, with trauma, you can point to a trauma, you know, and you can say your brain went haywire, flood of cortisol, you know, and your interpretation when you walked away might have been faulty, you know, because, you know, you weren't thinking right, if you will. Well, well let's um, look at this. We'll, we'll talk at a traumatic event. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. And the reason why I was actually thinking about it, I was actually thinking about the, the population from Brave Mind and some of the pains mm -hmm, that come from mm -hmm. that. But I'll give you just a, a more real example from my piece and we'll, we'll sure. hop into the Brave Mind section. It's like, yeah. you know, um, you know, I'm an entrepreneur and there's been times where I have completely wrecked a team where I came in and I and I said the wrong things and I had my ego was in front of it and I said things I shouldn't have and I blew up the team and people left and I had that trauma of 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 wrecking a team's dynamics by me being losing my cool, uh, uh, saying stupid stuff. Right. And then all of that stuff coming out and it, it's a traumatic event, but there was a piece of me that's like, there was like a story that I told myself that I've done a lot of work on is that like, you know, you, you're not a nice person. You can't handle your emotions. You're going to freak out. You don't deserve to have a team. Right. And holding on to a lot of that trauma that I caused, right. Because of my inability to control my emotions. Right. So I think part of that, and that was a, at not the same thing as a population for brave mind. Um, but in terms of a socially traumatic event where I felt shame and guilt and I felt like I deserved, I deserved to be punished because of this stuff. And it took a lot of, you know, forgiveness and apologizing and, and, and getting a lot of work to get through that process and actually gain a belief that I can resolve these situations. Um, but that for me, when you're talking about where does that come from? That's one thing that came to my mind of a situation that I actually, I, you know, I caused it and it was my fault and it was a very powerful learning lesson. And I'm, and I've actively worked on to try to get better at that. So I don't know if you have any thoughts around that. Well, you know, yeah. And that's, that's different than somebody who, who thinks this is how I am and I'm a bad person as opposed to that was an event. I'm going to reflect on it. I'm going to look at it and I'm going to try to do better the next time. I mean, I've had these experiences as well where, you know, it's like, what the hell was I thinking? Yeah. Why did I do that? Um, and, and, and you reflect on it. And, you know, if you can walk away from it with hope that, well, that's one I'm not going to do again. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm not going to make that mistake twice because uh, not only did it, it screw up the, the project, but it hurt. You know, yeah. it hurts when you reflect on those things. And who wants to have that those feelings, you know? Um, yeah. And so it all, it, but it does come down to your, your willingness to face it, uh, your willingness to, you know, delve into the whys and wherefores because everybody makes mistakes. Nobody's born fully formed. I'm, I'm getting at the later stages of my life now. And I'm thinking, boy, if I could start now with what I know, oh, boy, yeah. I, I would be less of an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. And but that learning lesson is like taking it as an event. I think my initial moment was I am this way, like this was me. And I, and I took a while to separate myself from that event. Right. And it did, it did take work on that. And, and there, you know, it did come to a point where like, 
situations like that happen in the future, or I guess more in the past, but when it happened again, right. And I saw myself start to spiral and start to piss off people. I actually stopped. I reflected, I, you know, got one-on-one -on -one with somebody. We had a really deep heart to heart. I'm like, and I was able to recover that one situation with that one individual. I was like, Oh, okay. It's not me against the world or me against my team that I'm fighting against. Mm -hmm. And then, and then I turned that one around and then I thought about it and I kind of wrote out my feelings about like how I was feeling just very emotional. And I went to, I went to everybody in front of them. I said, Hey guys, this is where I'm at. Like, I don't feel good. I'm thinking everybody here is the enemy. I know you're not, but this is what's going on with me. I actually want to get closer with you all. And I, I, I had that moment, but, but once I solved it that one time, I then had that new belief structure that like, I can, I, yes, I, I will mess up and it will happen and it's okay. I can, I can fix this. <laughs> yep. That is, a, yep. that is my, new, my new belief pattern now is I can fix this. And then if I fix it, I'm not in this world where I'm just like me against the world. Right. It, it's like, okay, I got to get vulnerable. I got to I got to eat some crow and and do some stuff, and, and so. sometimes you just got to frankly apologize since in the act of apology makes other people feel better but it also makes yourself feel better if, if it's yeah. genuine yeah. you know there's a, there's a healing element to it because the, it, it's a it's a it's it's facing the fact that we all goof up we all make mistakes yeah. um and we're on this this journey constantly learning and hoping hopefully refining um you know how we are in the world um so yeah so that's the thing we were talking about the the ownership and that's a owning the owning that event taking that as event owning that story coming out and apologizing to the people if that's the situation that caused it and then and then making a commitment to move forward right and that's those pieces right there at least uh, you know for me uh created uh not uh switched that adversarial relationship into like you know camaraderie and and that was a very helpful situation for me to, to kind of lean on um but not mm -hmm. everybody has that because you're trying to get right. them to open up and and sometimes you talked about that non-judgment piece um i was gonna I you was know gonna, yeah, go ahead. i wonder i wonder if this is part of the roots of some of the positive findings or they're they're seeing with psychedelic therapy um huh. for, you know from my experience with it you know uh I'll just be honest here i've had uh i've had those kinds of experiences where all of a sudden defenses are down and you're seeing things very clearly and all of a sudden you're not i'm not i wasn't liking so much of the things that i saw and it was like and then it snowballed it's like oh there was the time i did that no there was this and why did i do this and that and and but at the end of it i could look at it and go okay now i have a clear appraisal of, of things <laughs> i want to change and I'm going to do it and move forward. And I think that, you know, that may be part of that, um, you know, what people claim are the, the, the elements of the actual, uh, you know, successes that have been reported in the scientific literature, the psychedelic therapy for depression, for substance mm -hmm. use disorder, for PTSD, um, you know, yeah, well, because there's, I'm sure there's, a, I'm sure the biochemical piece of it going on. There's also the, the the elements of what you're talking about of facing that dark shadow that you are afraid to look at, um, because it, it starts to stack over time, right? Or like uh, another person gave a reference once. It's almost like holding balloons under the water, and you have all this all this stuff that you don't want to share with anybody. You're like, everything's fine, everything's fine. You just got a big smile, and you're like holding down the balloons and stuff. Um, but when you're when you're the psychedelics and you're actually doing the work and and i'm sure in those situations it's it's a it's a very well facilitated and done with intention 
but you face that shadow, right? You deal with it, you process it. And then you're right. You're like, you're like, Oh, but also when you stare at it, I think a part of that also kind of leans back to, it's almost like a psychedelic exposure therapy, if you would. Right. I mean, it sounds like kind of what mm -hmm. we're doing and, and a bit yeah. of what you did with grave mind um, in that kind of, in that thing where you look at it and you kind of like desensitize yourself to that situation. You're like, okay, that is true. Um, but it's not something that I need to run screaming in the night from, you know? Right. Right. Uh, you know, and that, that that's part of what Brave Mind uh, does for, for your audience. Uh, it's a mm. it's a set of virtual reality worlds that represent Afghanistan and Iraq contexts. you know, remote village or busy marketplace or uh, industrial area of Ford operating base in the mountains. And we have people that have come back from, you know, difficult uh, combat deployments and they have ptsd and you know we tell them what we want to do and they're like i don't think i want to go back and revisit and i go look it's hard medicine for a hard problem it's going to be it's going to get harder before it gets easier but by going back and confronting this stuff and talking about it in a in a way that is honest and getting it out and by doing this repeatedly new things are going to come out you're going to remember things in different ways you're going to get a, a sounding board to reflect off of and as you end up doing that more and more you start to see the anxiety dissipate and you know it, it, it's not easy therapy um but it is helping again you know, our, our buzzwords are it helps patients to confront and reprocess difficult emotional memories while they're in a safe place with a supportive clinician so you know, is it in, in VR? You can you can do it quite well because it's, it's such an emotionally evocative technology. Um, you ask people in a traditional format to close their eyes and imagine it. First off, you don't know what they're imagining. Um, yeah. they, you know, they're telling their story, and sometimes it's a very constricted cognitively sanitized story. You know, driving down a roadway in a Humvee and saw a guy up ahead with a cell phone and. Uh, IED blew up half our vehicle. My best friend died. End of story. You know, just uh, you know, just a facts, ma'am, kind of thing. Yeah. But um, so his therapist has her work cut out for him, and because uh, they want to pull out the emotions, and yeah. you know, say, all right, let's take it back ten minutes down the road before you got to that point. Tell me about your best friend that you were with, um, and you know, leading up to that point, you get them to talk about some of these things they haven't talked to anybody, but. It starts to pull out these kinds of emotions. And as you do this repeatedly, the combination of brain conditioning, really, uh, you're, by repeated exposures, the activation in the fight, flight, or freeze area, the brain, the amygdala, starts to go down. You get a little bit more frontal lobe modulation of that back or the middle part of the brain. Um, mm -hmm. But I think there's that cognitive personal sharing element um, that, that really is powerful and, and you can't minimize the value of, um, social support. You know, you can, you can have two people, the same, uh, same trauma, do the therapy. One person is living like an isolate without anybody around them. And the other person has, you know, rich family or friends or a sturdy husband or wife that's supporting them. That, that group is gonna, is gonna ultimately do better social support is one of the one of the key factors that you know regardless of therapy you know and so that's a challenge when you're dealing say with a homeless person or somebody that doesn't have a whole heck of a lot of that 
you know, part of your, your therapeutic strategy is not only what you do in a session, but to try to help them to find these things, whether it's a support group or find an interest that they had and try to pursue it with other people. Uh, you know, it varies with everyone and what their competencies are and what their access to these things are. That's um, yeah. not just one treatment. It's not just yeah. one thing that you're going to, it's not like take a pill and bang. It's not like put on a VR headset and bang, you're fixed. Yeah. A lot of deep well, things here. Well, it's interesting about that too. As you talk about that is usually the, uh, by running away from it, by taking that pill, um, by avoiding the situation to try to get into comfort, that thing gains momentum in the background. You know, that, 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 whether it's PTSD or uh, something you're not dealing with, whether it's, um, you know, being overweight or the conversation you're afraid to have or insert the thing, but it starts to build momentum where you're like, like there's this level of like, I want to be comfortable and I don't want to deal with it. And then it gets yeah. so big. It gets so massive. It gets so and stuff. It just eats up your world and then it gets overwhelming and then you get paralyzed without yep. being able to do anything. Right. And this so is, this is the endless cycle that perpetuates chronic PTSD. The idea that when you avoid something that makes you fearful or anxious, you get an immediate sense of relief. You know, you're you're away from it. It's like, oh, but that for for behavioral theory, that relief reinforces subsequent avoidance, and so you start you get a whiff of anything that's reminiscent, and you're out the door. Uh, you start to have a discussion with somebody, start talking about something. You change the topic, and you never confront it to find out that. You know, it's it's not a threat any longer. It's a bad memory, and you're not going to erase that. As, as we tell people, you know, you, you're still going to have all your memories. Um, mm -hmm. uh, we're not taking those away, but you'll learn to be able to deal with those memories once you get past this this avoidant activation that people have. And is, would that would that be the definition then of? And I don't know if it is. It just kind of came to me. Would that be the definition of happiness? Is removing all of the all of the the trauma and all of the 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 things that you're not dealing with and really tackling them? Like like is it is it is it is happiness the ap absence of all the trauma that is compounding in your brain? Or what is it coping? I think it's the coping with the trauma because we all have our bad experiences. But yeah. You know how do we how do we get over? It? I mean, humans are actually quite resilient. I mean, you look at combat stats, and and we freak out when twenty five percent come back with a mental health problem, per, per, particularly with PTSD. But the other seventy five percent, yeah, they felt bad. They saw some horrible things, but they adapted. They picked up. They moved forward, yeah. and over time, they kind of naturally had whatever coping mechanisms or brain processes, with whatever your orientation is, that that made them recover they still have a bad memory yeah. but it's not putting a harness on them as they go through life that's yes. what we're trying to understand that 20 that 10 to 25 percent why is it that that they can't they don't let it go it's no fault of their own uh it's just what it is it hooks them well it reminds me of there was uh i know what back in the day was some of the old wars right there was a huge like opium problem where a lot of the soldiers did opium right and they had a big fear that they said okay well we're gonna have you i think it was operation uh uh golden 
uh, something. something. Yeah, but they, they they would test the soldiers and they'd kind of clean them up and then send them into the U.S. because there's a large amount of soldiers were doing opium. And they thought when they came back, they would all do opium. But odd thing was, when they came back, it, it dropped back down to, yeah, it dropped back down context, to normal levels. Yeah. yeah, because you had that support. You know, you're no longer in this threat survival situation where your life is on the line and you're trying to cope right by doing opium or whatever the things that they're doing but it's a really interesting thing you're talking about the social support and finding that new that new environment that actually allows you to adjust so within happiness then be if you're unhappy then to find that social support and that structure would that be like you know what would be the steps if somebody was struggling they wanted to be happy right and they didn't know how to how to get there when how would they kind of how would they start to cultivate that and how would they start to build that over time? You talked about, you know, the gratitude being one, but what would be some other things that they could do? Oh, man. Uh, sometimes people, you know, the opposite of social, social support is uh, like clinginess and, uh, you know, people that think other people are going to solve their problem rather than, than participate with them on this journey and, honestly feel empathy for them and care for them have their back but you know a lot of times there's subset of folks that you know somebody's nice to them and they just grab on you know kind of what you always talk about with borderline personality disorder and so on mm -hmm. um you know so i don't know if there's a magic po potion here mm -hmm. other than you know, getting engaged in activities with other people where there's maybe a, a common goal. I know there, you know, for me, part of it was I, I played rugby for many years and I could be depressed as hell, have a girl break up with me and I was in the dumps. I'm on that rugby field, you know, playing and my focus is completely on that activity until I got off the field that I'd be bummed out again. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that that team, that, that shared activity, yeah you know i i, I think that's a that's a, a big thing you know um you know and you can't think of one then you join a support group mm -hmm. and maybe that's helpful and then you meet people there i mean i don't know i think the world's different I'm, i grew up in a different era i couldn't just go online and and have uh, a bunch of social mediated relationships i right. spend time in my room feeling sorry for myself you know no, uh, no time on tinder you haven't spent any time there? No, no man. <laughs> I was born too early for that. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, though, because if you look at the social uh, like social media friendships and stuff like that, it doesn't really feel as as much friendship, right? You don't really get that as much. Um, although I will say that the social media uh, virtual reality friends, I've had had some really dope conversations in VR with people where I feel much more connected versus like this, like, asynchronous i send you a message you send me a message, i post i wait for everybody to like it you know nobody likes right, it i right, get right, sad right. you know right, it's, right. it's an interesting context you're right though uh it's uh but you're talking about that group activity that you lose yourself in that you're like you're all like on the mission and on the and on the field um i do want to uh remind me later i'm going to uh, introduce you to a friend of mine who's uh making this whole rugby league local thing um that he's been he's been like pioneering and pushing on it's doing it he's doing it over in vegas but we'll talk about it later but i just want to yeah well no i think i think you guys would hey, your, yeah. your thing about uh avatar based chat rooms and oh all yeah that, where you where you take a um you know the persona of a digital character and you interact mm -hmm. with uh, the other personas so to speak or avatars yeah um, there's a there's a guy at duke um 
no uh, oh damn what's the one in nashville um oh, big university there anyway he's got a thing called very real help uh, uh and he's got the help club and it's peer supported groups that gather in, in these vr idyllic yeah. worlds and you're behind the shield of your avatar any self-consciousness you had is 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 gone maybe about your physical appearance or if you're too tall too fat too little whatever it is you're and, and people really find this to be a value and i think it's i don't think it's a replacement for good serious therapy if you need it but it's definitely a gap that people can fill and that they, they feel less less kind of judged in some way um you know, we find that with interaction with, with artificially intelligent virtual humans as well. People will reveal more. They'll self-disclose more personal information, reveal more incidents of sadness when they're talking to a piece of software in a human form uh, than they will to a real person or if they think it's an avatar of, of another person. So there's a lot of these things we've got to, you know, look at as outlets or mechanisms for um delivering this connection or making it available on demand like jeremy balenson's book mm -hmm. experience on demand you know mm -hmm. there's a couple of pieces there i think that are really interesting that i want to i want to dive in with you on that is um so you're talking about like people feel more comfortable when they're expressing their emotions uh to an ai or a ai a bot of some kind because they don't feel judged right um and at the same point um, we know with with neuroscience and with scanning the brain that people can form friendships, um, at least it, the same parts light up in the brain um, when they watch a whole bunch of TV shows and they start to like a certain character in a TV show. Right. Like so like the, the show Friends and like, oh, my God, or uh, Joe Rogan. Right. People look, think of Joe Rogan. Uh, you know, everyone's like, oh, he's my friend. He's like, hey, Joe Rogan doesn't know you. Right. He's just he's a podcaster. He's putting out the content. But you spend so much time listening to this on demand experience that you you actually form an emotional connection to that. And I want to know how close do you think we are to possibly having some sort of like therapist therapist bot or some sort of thing that you can actually develop an emotional relationship where you you'll know, like and trust them like your favorite TV show person or podcaster. But you also know that. They've got your back. They're not going anywhere. They're not going to report to anybody. And you have that, but you still have that connection with them. Have you have you have you, have you seen anything on that, or have any thoughts around that? Well, first off, I I steer away from virtual therapists. I think mm -hmm. I think there's a lot to be said for the idea of AI and uh, you know in a therapeutic mode where it's always available. It's never judgmental. Has encyclopedic knowledge of all you know, clinical strategies, encyclopedic knowledge of everything you've ever said to it. Um, so uh, there's definitely things to be said for that kind of therapy, except it's missing that human to human connection. And, and yeah. AI hasn't evolved anywhere near formulating what a good clinical approach is for someone with complex problems. Um, mm -hmm. And it'll be the most contentious issue in the future, next five years of clinical psychology, any helping profession, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of care providers think, oh, yeah, you can replace long distance truck drivers, factory workers with robots, all that, but not my job. Um, but it will happen and it will be very contentious. I tend to want to I'm old school. I want to stay in the middle. 
I would say maybe virtual companions that are reflective sounding boards and you can engage with. Maybe you get a therapeutic process out of the deal um, mm -hmm. and you get some, you have a place that you can talk to honestly and there's something curative or healing or, um, you know, optimizing about that. But I don't want to call it a therapist. There's mm. a lot, a lot of baggage in that. But uh, a, a virtual companion, companion, virtual buddy. Okay. Mm. I got one for you. Then there's um, there was this uh, VR uh, experience that I called Together VR, um, where you go on these like um, very PG thirteen dates with this virtual girlfriend, and you play very typical relationship activities where you you throw darts right against the ball board right and you try to compete with her um right and then one day she comes home with a vr headset and she puts it on and she's an avatar and you put it on then you play like a game with her you do like rock paper scissors with her you um do all these like typical relationshipy activities and like one of the last things you do is it's her she's got her sunday best on and she's lost a red envelope you got to go around the house looking for it right very like okay activities and then she went to go leave and when i was going through the experience and when she came back i actually felt like and she went to go give me a hug i felt my need to wrap my arms around and hug around like i felt i was like wow there was like five five little mini dates on here i could imagine if there was like a thousand if i would actually have this companion ish relationship with this definitely not a therapist but a relationship with them and it was just this little micro it was like it's just a taste of what i think is possible you know, coming around the pipe, I, but I, I couldn't imagine her trying to do therapy on me. I'd be, yeah, right, yeah. right. Yeah. And you, you don't have haptic feedback, so no. there's no touch, you know. No. <laughs> uh, I mean, what you're saying is like the next, you know, five generations past falling in love with your pen pal. You know, back mm. when I was a kid, you'd have pen pals, you'd write letters to. Yeah, yeah <laughs> man. And when that letter would come in the mailbox, you know, but your mom would say, hey, your letter came from that girl that you met. <laughs> you know, uh, but now you're doing it in real time, real action, real place, but no touch. Yeah. Very but that's so, still social connection, though. It felt, maybe it feels like social connections. Yeah. And maybe that's yeah. what you, like, you know, is yeah, it? Yeah. I think it's possible. I mean, it's not impossible. It is. It happens. People develop relationships uh, with people they've never met in mediated format. Uh, what no do you question about that? I have to. I'm going to have to go. I have a, mm. a call at four with Nina. Um, oh yeah. Cool. That sounds. I, but but we can we can close we, up with another yeah. question or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well. Yeah. We can we can wrap with this. Um. My question would be this. Um knowing that this is all around uh, world happiness and, and being happy, right? And we talked a lot about on the trauma side and what does it take? You know, what advice would you give in the areas of mental health and happiness? What things would you say to people um, to, to really help them shift the needle um, into a more happy state? Man, I, th I think realize that sometimes it takes a little bit of work, but the payoff is there. Um, and that the, you know, follow your passion uh, as long as you're not, you know, killing people in the process. <laughs> you know, try to find something that you love to do and um, and do it no matter what other people um, say to you. Uh, you learn about yourself and you move forward. At the same time, you'll possibly meet people with like-minded interests. Um, you know, the combination of social support but inner support that you get from following on something finding something and learning about it and growing with it um 
you know, I, I mean, uh, I think I would be way less happy person if I hadn't found what I love in my work, you know, and, mm -hmm. and that, you know, has, has kept me going uh, during tough times in other areas because I always knew I had that thing that I love to do and try to find it or join a group, go to a bird watching group or something, you know, something you wouldn't normally do. Uh, uh, and all of a sudden you, you start to find people, uh, you know, I, I think the, the challenge is when people aren't happy, they don't have the energy or they have the negative attitude that nothing I do is going to make a difference. That is where you need possibly to get help so that you can get past that and start to engage in life. That's a downward spiral with depression yeah. um, where you, you just, you don't put yourself in a position to get rewards, whether it's with people or it's with, activities that are fulfilling or accomplishments that you may have uh if you're out there you know that's a problem with depression is you call it psychomotor retardation you just don't want to you don't want to do anything no. yeah sure. so if you can't so that's a, that's a great thing is like do anything if you can't do anything ask for help and have someone help you to do something and then do it consistently so that you can kind of build that momentum up to get you yeah. to where you want to go and don't yeah. expect a you know overnight change you know it yeah. took a long time to get to the point where you're not happy a lot of times it might take a little more work and there's certain things in life that are, are not going to make you happy that you have no control over you know death or loss um, you know an occasional mistake that you made but that's that's past you know the future you gotta you gotta put yourself out there Absolutely. that sounds very maudlin and very uh pedestrian but you know that, i really see that as part of uh part of the challenge once you get into that negative spiral you don't put yourself in opportunities where you can get the reinforcement that will start to rebuild your life in a more positive way yeah it's 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 an important thing and it's in, and it's the basic things that actually work right happiness friendship laughter connection ha you know asking for help building your things over time i mean all those things are super important so um skip i know you've got to run so thank you so much for your time i very much appreciate you brother have a blessed and beautiful day my friend and i'll i'll see you on the other side you too bro it's been nice talking with you uh, Absolutely. just like how we would talk normally over here <laughs> <laughs> we'll get one of those soon too man all right dude much love i'll talk to you See you. Bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the Heroes of Reality podcast. Check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes. While you're there, you can also take the Heroes quiz to find out what kind of hero you are. Or if you have a great story and want to be on the podcast, tell us why your hero's journey will inspire others. Thank you for listening. See you on the other side.